0: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.
1: This episode of Real Estate is Your Business is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio.
2: Hi, my name is Yen Lin. I'm the CEO and founder of Sage Vacations. And what I love about real estate is the profound impact that it has on the way that people live and travel.
3: Investment property is not a new idea. However, the sharing economy is creating a new class of investment property focused on short-term rentals. Coming up, you'll
1: hear from an entrepreneur who's curating a branded experience for those short-term rentals. From New York City, you're listening to Real Estate is Your Business, powered by Preview, a smart online real estate brokerage providing expert advice without the high fees. With Thomas Kutzman and Scott Pollack.
3: Ian, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: With Sage Vacations, you're focused on acquiring and commercializing residential property. What does that mean?
2: That means that I'm looking at places that have undervalued property values, and I'm looking to create really great spaces for groups by furnishing them and then distributing them on short-term rental sites.
3: So you're effectively creating an a, almost a new asset class rather than a classic tenant landlord experience. It's more of a short-term rental portfolio.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, there's a real opportunity in this space because there is a demand for large spaces for groups who want to travel together who can't get the same experience at the standard hotel rooms. Um, and I think that that's the real differentiator in what we're doing is really identifying unique spaces that can accommodate for the large family or the bachelor bachelorette parties and reunions of all types.
4: Yeah. So is this trying to create, or do you see yourself trying to create in some ways kind of a new in between of, from an investment standpoint, the you know hotel and property developers who go out and build large large properties and resort destinations, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's People who happen to have a spare room or buying a place and renting it out on on Airbnb. And this is an in-between where you're explicitly going to find a place to turn into a, uh, a kind of a modern version of a vacation resort.
2: Right. So, you know, as you'll see with the Airbnb platform, as more and more people are learning the trade and putting listings on the platform, what's going to suffer is the quality of listings on the platform and Airbnb is trying to solve for this for things like um, Airbnb collections, right? It's a curated collection that's verified that is a way for clients and guests to have a hotel-like experience but in a local house. I think that the real opportunity here is for an entire network and brand of hotels or homes that can service the demands of having a local experience, but also wanting the same systematized, consistent hotel experience.
3: And as it relates to, like, when we think of it as an asset class, like, if you were buying a commercial building or any other residential property, um, there is some factor of market selection or what, how you go about, you know, identifying a market. Um, is is it different when you're thinking about short-term rentals?
2: So, I mean, the key things I look for are really non-tier one cities to start. So I'm not looking at the New York, San Francisco's, L.A.'s of the world. I am looking at lesser uh, known cities, but with pretty high regional tourism. You know, for example, I took a trip down south recently and I visited places like Atlanta, Memphis, Chattanooga, Nashville, places that are emerging cities that people are interested in visiting, but someone from London might not be interested in visiting them. But there's just enough concentration of travel that makes the investment appealing.
3: So it's more domestic yeah, and group
4: focused. Yes, and for re- now and regional in nature. So what is it that somebody might be looking to do in you know on vacation in Chattanooga, and that you're providing them that um, you know they might not otherwise have had before Sage existed.
2: Well, you know, it it comes back to the group travel experience. It's a place where you can call your home for a few days with a close group of friends or family, um, and you get to share the space. You know, you have your kitchen, your living room, and you're intimately connected in this space rather than being in, you know, five separate rooms and meeting in the hotel lobby or the lounge that is not very intimate. And so at the end of the day, it's really about creating those intimate experiences that make us happier human beings.
3: Do you think it's technology that's driving this, or is there just a generational trend of how people vacation now?
2: Well, it's both, right? Um, You know, people didn't sell stuff online until eBay came about. So I think people never thought about staying in local homes until Airbnb made it a thing. And um, so I think... Generationally, we desire to travel with other people and to grow and learn through travel. And so for me, travel is those two things. It's about personal development and transformational change with the people who you care the most about.
4: And what are the kinds of groups that are traveling? Is it mostly, you know, multi-generational family trips? Is it large groups of friends? Or is there anything else that you're kind of seeing that's somewhat unique to the, the way people are starting to experience travel these days?
2: Well, a lot of it is, you know, bachelor, bachelorette parties and reunions and families. I would say um, I think the growing trend are going to be groups of people. Um, and eventually what I what I want Sage to do is facilitate group travel among people who might not have been friends before they mm-hmm. reach that destination. Because I think... Um Just as Tinder has made it very normal for us to meet people online, there's no reason why you can't travel to a destination and meet a whole new group of friends and have that great connection and experience together with a new group of friends
3: so almost creating a like a community of travelers that happen to be in Chattanooga or yes n- city x y z um when they're that when they're there
2: yeah, and you're seeing that with larger travel experiences. There's more yoga retreats, there's more, you know, summit-like experiences where people are really there not just to experience the local food, but they're there to learn something about themselves and to connect with other people.
4: And what do you think is necessary to kind of create that kind of an experience of a community feel that when people, not just traveling as a group uh, that they already know, but to your point that they're coming to – I'll use Chattanooga again as an example – What is it that's going to bring them together with other people who are also traveling there? And what what kind of makes for a good, vibrant community?
2: Yeah, there has to be a lot of trust, right? People have to trust that when they get to a specific location that they're going to get a certain level of experience that meets what is in their heads. Um, And then secondly, they have to be with like-minded people. So there has to be a way for people to trust those two things, that the experience of the space is great and that they're going to meet amazing people that they're going to create lasting relationships, yeah. relationships with.
4: And Do you see Sage being in the business of, of, of facilitating those kind of communities or is the ultimate goal to really build the communities themselves such that you know, on one end, it could be you're you're providing spaces for people to meet and find their like-minded connection and and have great experiences. And on the other hand, it could be kind of an, uh, a step towards the end game of creating that kind of travel experience, a travel community for people that are, are you know coming to a particular place and just happen to be staying with you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I see it being very, very broad. Eventually, like initially, it will be about more curated experiences among very specific types of people. But eventually, as you build out this network of trust and the systems of connecting people who are like-minded, then it could be people staying in, you know, five different houses in Chattanooga, but coming together for a dinner that is sage organized um, and that we've curated based on the information that we have about travelers.
3: So yeah, it would be more community-based than not necessarily co-vacationing. You'd still have your separate space for your separate group, but you have more of an ability to connect.
2: Yes, because um, one of the things that is very appealing about spring break destinations or um, you know, Nashville, for example, is a great bachelor or bachelorette destination because there's a concentration of people who are there for a like-minded purpose. And there's no reason why we can't create that experience If we know what people are there for and who they want to connect with.
4: Is this something a different way of thinking than let's just say Hilton or Marriott or any of the big brands are thinking where they have people that are in the same destination. They have a venue, of course, in the hotel rooms, but they're not necessarily doing anything proactively to try to connect you to the other people that are in the hotel at the time that you're there. Do you think this is a kind of a different mentality or is this something that the the world is shifting towards and these hotels will also start to kind of move towards?
2: Yeah, you know, when I started this, I thought to myself, I want to create the next Marriott because I think what Marriott is missing is the community component and the understanding of how much that is valued in travel in our generation. Um, So I believe that what I'm creating is the next wave of travel the way that people are going to think about travel is not, okay, I want to go to, you know, Atlanta, and I want to stay in this Marriott because it's close to this tourist destination, right? It's more, okay, I want to go to Atlanta, but I want to meet these types of people who I can really build deeper relationships with and go experience the great food and culture that Atlanta has, but it's less about the destination and more about um, the, the relationships that you're creating. And also things like, you know, a getaway, right? It doesn't really matter where you are. It matters who you're with and the 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 mentality that you have when you're there.
3: And when you're looking at this, I mean, it almost seems like you're trying to control or curate the branded experience as opposed to just providing, you know, one trip or one travel. Like, how do you think about that brand building experience and how you're going to go about building that brand?
2: First, it starts with just creating great experiences to start. Um, I think any. Network of properties needs to start somewhere, and the first way to to do that is to make every interaction count um, so creating those great experiences, and then the next step of that is having buy- in from the community to be committed to this network um and through the the values that we you know are going to create it it will drive them to come back for experiences that we're going to create. Um, And then, you know, lastly, it's really starting to create more bespoke developments um, that cater to the specific needs of our audience. Um, So if it's like a destination that we know is very popular for retreats, then it's really starting to build those developments from scratch in a way that can cater to the needs of the retreats.
4: Do do you have a thought on what is it that the physical space needs to have to cater to the needs of, of a group that, you know, it's not just... Uh, kind of where you are, but but who you're with, as you said. Is there something specific that the place needs to have or the facilities need to have in order to kind of best enable those kinds of connections to be made?
2: Definitely. So large lounge spaces with smaller private spaces. I think the primary focus is building really inspiring, creative, large spaces. And then the secondary is a well-designed, smaller space to sleep in. That's secondary to to whatever it is that we're creating in in the com- communal space. Yeah, yeah.
3: Because if you're traveling, you're not you're not spending as much time. You're you're out and about, you know, on activities or hikes or, you know, out in the city, at brews, whatever. You're not going to be in your bedroom or wherever you're staying that long. So,
2: right. And then design is paramount. I think that you'll see that you know properties that have better design and better photos on short term rental sites tend to pre- perform better because that's how people make their decisions about which places they're going to book among all the you know thousands of options that they have
3: coming up we'll talk a little bit more about how you select these markets and where you see the whole concept of short term rentals as an idea Um, But first, uh, you've been kind enough to bring a snack to share. Um, What did you uh, you bring today?
2: (laughs) So it's a whole medley of snacks, actually. I just got back from a trip from Tokyo. Cool. So i picked up a whole series of snacks that are very popular in Tokyo, in particular um, Kit Kats of many flavors. Nice. And other sweets. So... Great. Thank you I for that.
4: that. Yeah, I'm just is there, them out. Is this our first international? I think Give we've a snack. snack. We've had. Uh, we did have had some. Folks. Oh, Look at these. Oh my goodness! I'm intrigued by this pouch liquid thing. That's certainly not a Kit
2: Kat. That so that is um honeydew jelly. Intriguing. And I have apple flavor Kit Kats, wasabi flavor Kit Kats.
3: Wasabi flavored Kit Kats
2: It's not really spicy. it's um it's pretty mild and then this is green tea candies so inside there's matcha
4: what were you doing in japan
2: i was running the tokyo marathon
4: Wow. wow how was how was that How'd you do? It was
2: awesome. Uh, I finished in four hours and 15 minutes. Nice. It's um, a lot
4: faster than I can do it, ah! which is an infinite number of hours and minutes because I can't do
2: that. <laughs>
4: is it, was this your first marathon? No, or? this
2: was my seventh marathon.
3: Seventh marathon. Yeah. Wow. Um,
2: my fifth continent. So my goal is to run all of the, uh, a marathon on every continent by 2020.
4: And so, if my geography serves me true, that means you're going to Antarctica yes. to run a marathon in there. twenty twenty. Is, is there such a thing?
2: Yeah, yeah. I booked it last yeah. year. Wow. Because there's a three year waiting list.
4: So where, where, how do you do that exactly? How do you run a marathon in Antarctica?
2: Um, it, it, it's an island off of the continent. So Still I believe it, it's Georgia's. Georgia's Island is what it's called. Wow.
4: Very cool.
3: Great. We'll, uh, we'll check out these snacks, and uh, we'll be right back. I feel like a fatty eating this ah.
4: after talking about marathons. Are you looking to buy a home in New York City? Get more with Preview's industry-leading smart buyer rebate. Seamlessly search listings on Preview's end-to-end buyer platform. Purchase your home with the expert advice of a local agent, Plus, receive up to
2: 2% cash back thanks to Preview's Smart Buyer Commission rebate. Smart buyers get more with Preview. Go to PreviewApp.com buyer. That's PreviewApp.com
0: buyer. Hey
3: everybody, it's Tom. We enjoy bringing the show to you week after week, but we need your help. One of the best ways for listeners to discover the show are from your reviews. So let's make that happen. Go to iTunes, search Real Estate Is Your Business, and leave us a review. And while you're at it, why not a five-star rating? (laughs) Yin, we were talking earlier about how you came up with the idea for Sage and the idea of a branded experience. Um, but I wanna take a, a step back and think more broadly about how the idea of short term rentals has changed things uh in the industry and how we think about the vacation model. Um Airbnb's obviously been one of the drivers in introducing this to people, but where do you see it going over the next five, ten years?
2: I think that's gonna depend a lot on regulation, honestly. In you know, what we've seen in New York City is that it's become very much illegal to rent out entire apartments. And, you know, despite the fact that it's illegal, people are still doing it because there's just, it's very, a highly profitable business. Um, But I think in cities that welcome it and they realize the potential that it has, they're going to have amazing spaces pop up for people to book and travel to. And I think... Um, you know, places that really embrace this idea of creating unique spaces for large groups are going to see that, that return to their city, and they're going to continue to build, you know, great relationships with professional brands that are coming in and creating unique experiences for groups.
3: Now, is that why you focus more on the second-tier markets versus, you know, the first-tier markets?
2: Certainly, there is less of a risk in um, second-tier markets because those cities tend to be friendlier towards short-term rentals.
4: You know, with the regulation right now, I know in New York in particular, you know, there's a lot of, uh, on one side, pushback from hotels and kind of the incumbent industries. On the other hand, from communities that, that think that the short-term rental is kind of driving up prices or changing the dynamic of buildings, et cetera. But when it comes to kind of professionalizing short-term rentals. Do you think that kind of cuts, cuts away some of those um, kind of regulatory risks and, and that in some ways lifts the industry and but also changes the dynamic of what it means to be in a kind of short-term rental? You're not necessarily staying in someone's spare bedroom anymore, but you're also not in a hotel. You're in some kind of a unique uh, asset class, as Todd said before, that didn't previously exist.
2: I think the professionalization of short-term rentals is a positive thing. Because it does reduce the risk for both the platforms and for the travelers. You know, we've seen some unfortunate cases of, you know, cameras being, you know, used in spaces without the guests knowing, or families being uh, you know, in a space that had carbon monoxide that they didn't know about and then unfortunately they passed away. So sa- for safety reasons and for a more cohesive experience, I think that there's a lot of value for short-term rental properties to be commercialized and professionalized. Um, I think that the guests will continue to demand unique spaces. So gone are the days of the Marriott's of the world where every single room will look the same and, and that you know, it, you're in this one building and that you're not really making an effort to create unique spaces and to create community with guests. Um, That's always going to be something that I think guests will continue to demand over time. Um, In cities where it has become more illegal, what we'll see is that there will be commercial operations that will seek to be more legal in their approach. So they'll seek to get licenses and permits um, and essentially creating a hotel that is a much more unique experience than a Marriott.
3: Now, did you come from a hospitality background that you have such a strong and you know deep knowledge of this? How did you how did you stumble upon the idea of real estate and vacation rentals?
2: I actually grew up in a restaurant, so um, I'm a first generation Chinese American. My family had a Chinese restaurant growing up, and I spent every evening, weekend, vacation at the restaurant, and so I have a deep Um, understanding of client relationship and customer service, and I really stumble upon the hotel hospitality space, because in between my first company and my second company, I had invested money into renovating a house, so going in and getting my hands dirty, replacing hardwood floors, repainting the walls, and assembling furniture, and I put it online thinking that I would make back my investment and have a modest amount of side cash. And so it turned out to be a really great investment. I was very surprised. And usually when I find something that surprises me, I dig a little deeper and explore it further. And um, just realized that I could reinvest profits and bring in partners to acquire more properties. And that was the start of the portfolio that I'm building and creating now.
4: So it started just with with your own place that you're renting out or buying and, and planning to rent out or flip or some kind of traditional path?
2: Yes. Very, very traditional. Um really had no intention of acquiring more properties. It you know, I had time and a little bit of capital and I wanted to create some passive, you know, income.
4: Yeah. And that, that, you know, that obviously is a, a well-worn track in the kind of real estate space, but you, you obviously, you know, you look deeper, as you said, and you found kind of this broader opportunity for, for community is a term we've been using a lot today. Um, you know, I'd love to understand how that spark kind of evolved for you. It sounds like maybe from your original background, also some of the other businesses you worked on, I'd love to understand a little bit more about like how that component combined with the kind of traditional track that you started on to, to reveal Sage.
2: I've always been a community person. And by that, I mean, wherever I am, wherever I go, I create community for myself and those around me. And, you know, SheWorks was a company that I had built that was for female entrepreneurs. And our goal as a community was to create value by connecting women entrepreneurs with investors and advisors to scale their businesses. And with that business, it started with a, a simple brunch you know, on a Wednesday morning with a group of uh, my female founder friends. And that brunch we did every single week for an entire year. And out of that year came seven global chapters with volunteer organizers, organizing the very same brunch that we were organizing in New York City on a monthly basis. And over two years, we connected 20,000 women entrepreneurs through Smaller events, but also larger conferences that were focused on connecting women specifically with investors and helping them helping them to raise funding.
4: That's awesome.
3: And we we've talked about this briefly in, in past episodes because obviously you know when we're reaching out to guests um, to have on the show, there actually has been you know typically in technology there's an underrepresentation of of women, um, but even in, now in real estate technology we find there's even a a bigger disparity Mm -hmm. um, in the industry. Um, And we're always curious to get, uh, you know, viewpoints on, you know, why you think that is and how we can, you know, all work together to change that.
2: Well, if you look at who controls wealth, then you can start to work backwards from there to understand why the landscape is the way that it is. Um, I think it's not a mistake that the wealthiest people in the world have in their portfolio a large um, allocation towards real estate assets. It, it's an asset class that has worked really well in creating, maintaining wealth. And until women are, you know, in that position to do that, then we're going to continue to see um, sort of this imbalance in the ecosystem. And similarly in tech, right? You have most of the capital allocation being, uh, the the power of capital allocation being held by males. Um, and until we see more women investors in positions of power, we're going to continue to see fewer um, female founded companies getting funded. And so part of my inspiration in building this is I, I do want to be able to be in a position to change that as an investor and as a you know mentor to other women who want to build wealth through real estate, because I think it's one of the most critical components of wealth building that everyone should learn and be able to capitalize on.
3: And just going back to SheWorks for a second, how how did you go about creating that environment to bring more investment to female founders?
2: It starts with the relationships. Um especially in the early stages, people don't invest in people who they don't know or who they don't have trust in. And so for us, it was about creating touch points for those relationships to happen through regular, consistent breakfasts and then larger conferences that were focused on connecting those who are fundraising with those who are specifically looking to invest in specific types of women. And so having that information and having the ability to connect those two were the most powerful thing that we can do as a community. Yeah.
4: And for Sage, do you see this as, you know, your personal avenue by which to kind of generate wealth that you can reinvest in the community of, of women entrepreneurs and, and, and enable others to get into the real estate world? Or do you see an avenue within Sage itself as to kind of t- take the community of people who are staying with you or involved in other ways and enable them to also kind of find a path uh, on the real estate journey that you found?
2: I think it's both, right? I think that um, what's very important to me is that whatever wealth is created through SAGE, I can use it to support causes that I care about. And for me, that is, okay, how do we get women to be in positions of power, politically and um, financially, yeah. to start to make decisions that will really start to create transformational shift in the ecosystem? Um, You know, I did Teach for America here in New York. And one of the things I love about Teach for America is that not only are teachers placed into classrooms where they can start to create change, but then they have this invested um, history in education that they use to create change outside of the classroom. So then they become principals and presidents of charter schools and uh, politicians. And then they can start to make decisions that will change the underlying system and ecosystem and truly create that lasting change that we all want to see.
3: And as far as, you know, the next, you know, three, five year journey for, for Sage, you know, the, the next, you know, the roadmap, um, where, where do you see yourself going and how do you envision building, uh, building the team around you?
2: So a lot of the end of this year will be focused on fundraising and, Um, bringing on board a group of invested partners who believe in the vision that we're creating. And then once we have secured that, then that gives us a lot of opportunity to start to think about um, the regions that we want to invest more time in. A lot of what is being done right now is how do we maximize on the capital that we have and how do we scale our portfolio to the best that we can with our current access to capital, but once we have more capital, then we are able to make um, decisions that are more aligned with the vision that we want to create for Sage. And part of that is going to be, um, you know, a, a platform whereby we can start to have our community return to the Sage platform rather than booking, you know, through uh, a third-party site.
4: And so where, where do you have locations now? And in terms of the capital that has launched the company, is that based on parlaying your own real estate or do you have investors that have uh, helped you launch the kind of initial properties?
2: Yeah, so part of it is um, reinvesting profits from that first property. But you know, in the last six months, I've 10x the portfolio by bringing on investor partners who you know see that I've identified a unique opportunity and are willing to take a deal that I think is valuable to me as an investor and as an entrepreneur. Um, and right now, properties are mostly in, in those tier two cities that I've mentioned in one to two markets. But you know, for this year, I want to be able to expand to at least three to four markets.
3: Well, it sounds like you're off to a really great start, and we wish you, uh, you know, success with uh, the fundraising. And when we come back, we'll get a little bit more into personal questions to learn more about you, Yin, outside of SAGE. Be right back.
0: Do you remember what we used to say about running? Oh, somebody bigger
4: had to chase you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: I'm BJ Smith, and that's exactly how I felt about running most of my life. That was until one fall day in 2011. I was chasing my son in the backyard when (sighs) something had to change. This was the beginning of my journey to becoming a runner. One that would take me from couch to marathon in less than two years. Now I'm setting my sights higher. This is 16 Weeks, a new podcast from Mouth Media Network, following me on my journey to get into shape while keeping up my obligations at work and still being there for my family. And I'm not doing it alone.
1: My
2: name is
3: Keith Smart. I won a silver medal in Beijing.
1: I'm a sport and exercise psychologist at ECU. Coach athletes all over the world. and I'll
0: talk training. with experts about challenges all runners face, like figuring out how to make time to run, what to eat, and how to train.
1: You got so dehydrated. Your heart rate went up and it felt like you were working so hard.
0: Everything's trainable, whether it's run form, strength. That's all trainable, and so is our thinking. Subscribe now to 16 Weeks on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you find great podcasts. Together, we can do this.
1: Keep up with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Real Estate Biz Show and with hashtag Mouth Media. Plus, check out all of the Mouth Media Network shows at mouthmedianetwork.com and wherever the best podcasts are found.
3: Ian, earlier during the break, you were talking about the marathons you've run. And you've run five marathons, five continents so far. Your goal is to run all seven continents. How did that start? Was it one race or have you always been a runner?
2: So the first year I did my first marathon was the first year I started running. And I signed up for the Brooklyn Half with a bunch of other teachers. I was doing Teach for America at the time. And when I finished the half, I thought, wow, this is not that hard. And so I wanted to challenge myself and sign up for a marathon. And when I finished the marathon, I thought, wow, this is really, really hard. But something compelled me to sign up for another race. And after the second race, I I decided that I wanted to keep doing this, but wanted to do it in a more purposeful way. So I decided to set a goal to run a marathon on every continent. And so since then I've done five continents and just finished Tokyo in March.
3: Well, I mean I've I've run New York twice and usually at the end of a marathon you think I'm never doing this again. <laughs> so it's uh, it's pretty impressive to you know be that persistent to keep going with all of the other races.
2: I think that I learned something new with every race that I do. Um the first, you know in the beginning it was is it possible? Can I actually run 26.2 miles? And I proved to myself in Marathon 1 and 2 that yes, it is possible and I can finish the race and do it uh, within a time that I'm proud about. And then now it's really about okay, I know I can finish it, but what else can I learn about myself in the process? And what else can I learn about the city in which I'm running the race? Um, so a lot of it is about that Humble discipline that you need to get through each training in each race.
4: What are some of the things you've learned about yourself uh, in each of these races that you've run so far?
2: I think every time that I cross the finish line, the world of what's possible for me expands. And I mean that very generally in that you know I just feel more capable of of doing anything that it is that i I want to do. And so less fear in approaching someone who I find intimidating, less fear in taking that extra risk of buying an additional property. Um, I think that mindset has been very powerful for me in business and in my personal life. And then to to speak more granularly, um, it's really teaching myself with every race and every training run that it it takes time. That wherever it is that I want to be, I'm going to have to put in the work to get there. So it doesn't matter that today I am, you know, at point A, and I know that I want to build an next Marriott. Um, I know that I'm going to have to, years of work that I need to endure before I can get to that point.
4: Yeah. You know, and you talked before about how you grew up in an entrepreneurial family, restaurant family. You mentioned uh, in the last segment that you uh, had started a couple of businesses, including SheWorks. Um, I'm curious about your kind of journey, your your full journey, um, from kind of those very early days. Did you see yourself always going down the path of kind of being entrepreneurial, or uh, did you did you say kind of like Tom with his first marathon? I'm never going to do that again. Being in an entrepreneurial <laughs> family, did uh, did you say I wasn't going to do it, and found yourself there anyway?
2: It's quite the opposite. So I would say my family became entrepreneurs because they had to. So um, both of my parents and myself, I was born in a peasant rural village in China. And if you go back today, you'll see really young people or really old people because everyone in between leaves because there are no economic opportunities. And so I would say 90% of the American Chinese restaurants that you see in the US have been started by people from my village. And those are, uh, it's a city in China called Fuzhou and we're called Fujianese people. And what I learned from my parents was that I never ever want to be in the restaurant business. Uh, it's the hardest business to be in. And, you know, it, it, it's just the margins are horrible. Um, and they wanted me to go down a very traditional path, being that they've taken such a big risk. So they wanted me to be a lawyer or doctor and, you know, have a very stable, predictable career. And I, I sort of stumbled into the entrepreneurship world after meeting someone online who was a romantic interest but then became a professional uh, partner. Um, and, And through that first business was when I really started exploring this idea of, okay, I don't need to have a traditional job to create success and wealth that my parents want me to create.
4: And what was that first business?
2: So it started off with just helping early stage startups build their pitch decks. And so these companies would come to us um, with their idea and you know the traction that they've created so far and we would help them craft a compelling story mm-hmm. and a aesthetically beautiful pitch deck. And those clients went on to raise a good sum of money and they came back to us and said, hey, now we have all this money, can you help us build our website, our mobile app and do some development work? And so, very organically, we started to build a, what looked like now, uh, a full-service agency. Um, and then in the two years I was with the company, we scaled to the seven-person team and started to invest in companies through our work. So we would mm-hmm. do equity um, cash deals with a lot of the startups we worked with.
3: Very cool. I got Tusk Ventures approach, give advice and get some equity for it. Yeah. Exactly. No, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm curious in that you are working on creating experiences for people, these more modern vacation ideas. What are some of your favorite trips that you can recall?
2: My favorite trips are my marathon trips. So every year, my big trip are are these marathon trips. And I I really enjoy them because it it's you know I'm there for a purpose and I'm not there just to be a tourist. Um but when I'm in a city I like to to experience it as if I'm a local. I don't do the you know I need to see every single tourist attraction. Um I pick 3 to 4 things that I definitely want to see and then everything else um I just let happen.
3: Do you do you give yourself time to get get there first get acclimated and then like be a little bit touristy or local after the race? Or does the, is the race the culmination of the trip?
2: Usually the race is uh, the culmination of the trip because after the race, I'm pretty much useless. But uh, for Tokyo, I actually had the race in the middle of the trip. So I did Tokyo, had the race, and then I went to Kyoto, Osaka, Takasaki, Niko. So traveled to a bunch of cities all around Japan.
4: And what are the two continents that you have left?
2: Africa and Antarctica. So, I'm doing the Two Oceans Marathon in Cape Town, which is actually an ultra technically because it's a 35-miler. It's more than a 26-miler. Um and then Antarctica is a, a marathon.
4: So, are you how are you preparing for a 35-mile run?
2: <laughs> so, now I'm not doing any running because I usually take a 2 to 3 month hiatus from running after a race. I've been doing mostly swimming and biking. Um but it it will be the same thing. It's just a matter of adding adding more mileage and training up to thirty miles instead of training up to you know twenty two miles
3: so is that a i you'll hit seven marathons in twenty twenty and just you know check that off your bucket list, or would you think you'll keep running and you know get into ultras and and beyond?
2: I think that I will do all the major races so i haven't done london paris chicago um and so those races in boston those races i definitely want to do i also have set a new goal for myself recently which is to do all the summits on every continent so um that's the next challenge that i want to approach after i do all the marathons Um, have you
4: ever done any sort of mountain climbing before
2: Um, I have, but I'm not a serious climber. I like to when I when I decide to do something, I kind of like to dive into it and learn everything that I can and just make it happen. And I know that if I set a goal for myself, I can usually get there because that forcing function of having a goal has always worked for me and has been a very powerful motivator for me to accomplish what I want to accomplish.
3: So will one of those seven summits be Everest?
2: So, I mean, I I think that I want to do Everest eventually. It might be later in life, or um, I don't want to risk my life for the sake of accomplishing the goal. So that's something I have to ponder when I get there. Um, And then the other thing is I do want to eventually do uh, an Ironman. And once I do that, I probably will not pursue more than one Ironman.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I did Lake Placid in 2007, and there was... there were a few years after that where I didn't want to see a bike or run <laughs> or do anything. So um, I, I do encourage it because, you know, less than one tenth of one percent of the population has done an Ironman. So
4: which just to I have to give I happened, reference.
3: Uh, by, I happen to look that one up yeah, just to give reference. An Ironman being a two mile swim, a 2.4 swim, 112 bike and then a marathon.
4: Pretty intense. Yeah,
3: it, yeah. It'll break you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, no, I highly encourage it uh, if it's on the roadmap uh, for you. Definitely,
2: definitely. Um,
3: well, I mean, after after hearing all of your personal section, I feel like I need to set some new goals. Um,
4: to... <laughs> Should have had so much at snack time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we should think about a new a new segment other than snacks. Future time. guests, just apples and bananas from uh, now on, please. we will go on a health kick for, uh, uh, for future guests.
2: Yeah, I mean that might be a good way to introduce healthy snacks to your audience.
4: <laughs> <laughs> there was a there was an apple flavored Kit Kat, so I think we're, yeah, we're covered.
2: The fruit, now. the fruit.
3: Yeah, <laughs> this has been a great conversation, and we like to give all of our guests the opportunity to you know share with everyone listening a final thought, if you will. Um, doesn't have to be a, you know, groundbreaking, you know, revelation, but you know, what would you like to leave with the uh, the listeners today?
2: I think one of the things that I always strive to do in my life is to be very intentional and methodical about the way that I put myself into uncomfortable situations, and I think travel is the best way to develop yourself through placing yourself in uncomfortable situations. And so I encourage everyone to seek out travel and connection as a way to learn and develop yourself.
3: And for anyone that's listening that wants to reach out to connect with you and Sage, um, whether it's investors or what have you, uh, how can how can folks reach out and connect with you?
2: So I'm on Instagram, and my handle is at y i n n u s, and. Feel free to also reach out to me via LinkedIn or Facebook.
3: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And for Scott. Bye, everyone. I'm Tom, and real estate is your business.
1: You've been listening to Real Estate Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for this show, or to become a sponsor, email us at show at mouthmedianetwork.com. Keep up with the show on social media at Real Estate Biz Show. That's Real Estate B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, realestateisyourbusiness.com. Produced by Mouth Media Network and brought to you by Preview. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thanks for listening.
0: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.